Well, good morning, Northwestern. Um, kind of a different morning. Justin Jepson is not here. You can give him a hard time when you see him again. Um, but I have the privilege of filling in for him um, and also the privilege of inviting up our guest this morning. Um, our guest today is Dr. Dale Lemke. Uh, he is my advisor. Um, he is the head of the Christian Ministries Department. Um, he's married to his wife, Heidi, and he has two adopted daughters from Japan. And so if you guys could do me a huge favor and give him a warm Northwestern welcome as he comes on stage. And uh, please stretch your hands out as we pray for him before he speaks. Um, but dear Jesus, I thank you so much for this day. Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord, that you have given us this morning to hear from Dr. Dale Lemke, God. Father, I just pray um, that your Holy Spirit would speak through him, Lord. I pray that you would anoint his lips, Father God, that it wouldn't be him who speaks, Father, but I pray that it would be your Holy Spirit speaking through him, God. And I pray for all of us who are listening, Lord, all of us that are in here and those that are watching online, I pray, God, that we would be attentive and that uh, your spirit would pierce our hearts and that we wouldn't leave the same way that we came in, God. So I thank you, Lord, um, for this day, and I pray another blessing over him. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, good morning. Well, if you would have asked me when I was your age if I'd be standing here in this room uh, teaching here at Northwestern, that would not have been on my radar at all. Uh, but I will tell you, God guides each step of the way, and that is good news uh, to you. Um, my journey uh, is that I felt a calling uh, to missions uh, early in my college years, and uh, my wife and I, we went and served at a church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Actually, we were in the inner city. Wonderful experience uh, working in a church that was about transforming and impacting its local community. And then the Lord took us overseas uh, to Japan, where we served for seven years as missionaries with the Christian Missionary Alliance there. And during that season, actually towards my second term, uh, the Lord was giving us a vision for bivocational ministry. So uh, I started teaching English in universities and schools and all of that so that I could build relationships with Japanese people to share the good news with them. If you were to ask me what my core vision in life is, I would say it is to resource people, resource you for kingdom mission. However God's gonna use you to make an impact in your sphere of influence for the sake of his kingdom. And recently I read this book uh, called Hero Maker. If you haven't read it, maybe you've heard about it. I highly recommend this book to you because the core message of this book is that God is not calling us as leaders to be the heroes, right? He's not calling me to be the hero. Instead, he's calling me to be a person who empowers you to be a person of influence. He's calling me to be rather a hero maker. And when I think we look at Jesus' life, we see someone who, he's the ultimate hero of history, right? And yet he invests in the disciples and he empowers them and he sends them out. He was a hero maker. 
That's what Jesus did, and that's what I want to look at today. So today I was asked to, this was kind of going to be like a missions week or something like that, and I was asked to speak about kingdom mission, which is right up my alley. I was like, yes, absolutely, let's do this. Um, as we jump into this, I wanted to frame out for you two ideas uh, as we get started. First is the idea of kingdom. What do we mean by that? And when we think about kingdom, we are talking about God's all-encompassing rule. And that rule involves conflict, if you've thought about that or not. It's a conflict with our political systems. It's a conflict with our human brokenness, the evil in the systems of this world. Ultimately, it's a conflict with Satan. And we know that God is victorious. Secondly, kingdom involves a call to repentance. It involves a call to turn away from our agendas and align our lives with God's agenda. And the kingdom is about the gospel, right? It's about good news. The good news that even though we are broken and sinful, Jesus Christ gives us new life and he gives us hope and he sends us out as kingdom agents in this world. And then when we think about mission, right? The task of thinking about kingdom mission today, mission is all about the movement of God. God is on the move. He is active today and in your life and in our world. His spirit is calling us to be agents of the gospel message and agents of hope and healing in the world today. So when I think about kingdom message today and as we dive into our passage, I want to look at uh, Matthew chapter 9 verses 35 through following. Some of you who know me, you know this is like one of my favorite passages. Uh, Maybe you want to pull that up on your uh, phone or if you have your Bible here, we're going to look at that in a little bit. We are to align our lives with the mission of Jesus Christ. And today, that's what I want to do. I want to look at his passion for the world, and I want to look at his plan for carrying out his purposes in this world through us. Before we get there, I have to say I'm actually a little bit troubled about the state of the church, about this season in which we live We face a time of unprecedented physical disease, racial injustice, spiritual isolation. And I'm afraid sometimes the American church in particular has become seduced by the rhetoric of our day. The rhetoric of politics, the rhetoric of MSNBC and Fox News, the rhetoric of Republican politicians and Democratic politicians. And in no way do I want you to leave here today saying, oh, Dale doesn't think we should vote or we shouldn't be involved in politics. Don't hear that at all. But we've been seduced. The politicians would rather demonize one another rather than address and actually acknowledge the problems in our midst. And I think some of my friends, my Christian friends, have bought in. When I look at their social media feeds, I see people pushing away the reality of disease, pushing away the reality of injustice in order to defend their own political assumption or party or position. 
And I think the kingdom that God is calling us to today is a kingdom that looks honestly at our world and our circumstances and aligns our heart not with a political party, but with the heart of God. And I think that's what we see here in Matthew chapter 9. We see the heart of Jesus, right? The heart of the king. And we see his plan for making a difference in his world that was similarly broken, where political rhetoric was similarly distracting, where people were hurting in a similar way. And so let's look there. Let's look at Matthew chapter 9 and start in verse 35. And here I think we're given this wonderful view of Jesus' heart. It starts in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were helpless. They were harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. So here's the scene, right? In the passages just leading up to Matthew chapter 9, Jesus had been out among the people. We know if you look back, this uh, chapter 9 verse 35 is kind of a parallel verse to a verse that shows up in chapter 4 verse 23, and it kind of sets that whole section off to say this is kind of a summary of what Jesus had been about, what he was doing. And we know Jesus was out preaching about the kingdom of God, teaching that the kingdom of God was about heart transformation. And he was healing. Chapter 9 actually records two of these healing miracles just as we move into this passage. So this summarizes the work that he was doing. And Jesus, it's almost like he withdrew from the crowds, from the towns. He went up on a mountain. He's looking down at the people. And he just sees and he reflects on the reality of what he had just seen. And he's filled with compassion. The word compassion here is actually a really strong word. We see that there in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. This word is only used of Jesus, actually, in Scripture. The New Living Translation says it's like he had pity on them. The scholar Lenski says, of the three words being translated, being compassionate, this one is the strongest. It indicates not only pained uh, feeling at the sight of suffering, but also a strong desire to relieve that suffering. It's like when Jesus saw the crowds and he really looked at them, his stomach wrenched in pain for them because he saw their condition. And his passion was to bring kingdom healing and hope to those people. Notice the context of his compassion. Jesus felt compassion for people because he was with them. Verse 35 tells us that he was in their villages and places of worship. 
He knew what was going on in their lives, and he noticed it. He really looked at them and saw what was going on. He was ministering, teaching, and healing and such, and that's what contributed to this sense of compassion for them. And I can tell you, like in my own experience, this was one of the amazing things about becoming a tent-making missionary in Japan. When I moved into that bivocational role and I started spending more and more of my time and energy out among the Japanese people, rubbing shoulders with them, hearing what was going on in their lives, I was able to connect with them, to hear about the problems. Actually, I was there during the 2011 tsunami um, that you all probably know about, right? The big earthquake that caused the great wave and the nuclear reactor. Now they're thinking about dumping this nuclear water back in. Um, but we were there during that time, and it was so intense. I remember kids crying outside the school buildings. And to be with people and walk alongside people and hurt with people and understand what's going on in their lives is kind of this essential element of developing empathy and compassion for other people. And Jesus modeled that for us. Notice also in verse 36 the reason for his compassion. It says he had compassion for them because they were distressed. They were downcast like sheep without a shepherd. He saw their real condition. Matthew says that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And sheep without shepherds, I don't know, they have like maybe at least two problems we learn in this passage. The first is that they wander around aimlessly, right? They get into trouble. They get into thorn bushes. They get away from the water so that they don't know where the water is and they become thirsty. And ultimately, Jesus says they get to this condition of being bewildered. The bewilderment that Jesus is talking about here is a bewilderment because the, sh the shepherds were not taking care of the sheep. The political leaders of their day, the religious leaders of their day had their own agendas. And they weren't actually caring for the people. And the people were bewildered. Do you see people like that in our world today? People who are searching for success in their jobs, maybe their communities. They're trying to find satisfaction through the volunteer work they do or the extracurricular work they do through their friendships. People, even I would say committed Christians arguing for their political party, but somehow failing to have compassion for people around them. I would suggest these people are actually somehow disconnected from the mission of Jesus and the heart of Jesus. They're not able to see the bewilderment of those around them and to align their agenda with the agenda that Jesus has. Well, if we read on in that passage, it says that they were harassed and helpless. So a second problem that sheep without shepherds have is that they sometimes get attacked. They get attacked by wolves. When the shepherd's not around to protect the sheep, they're, they're vulnerable to these attacks, right? And Matthew says that they're, they're downcast sheep. 
it's like they've been beaten down, they've been attacked by a wolf, and they're left for dead. And when Jesus was among the people, he saw downcast people. People ignored by their religious leaders, ignored by those around them. People left for dead. Do we see that in our world today? Depression on the rise. Stress levels higher than ever. Addictions on the rise. Beating people down. Marriages failing. Fear of COVID. Anger at racial injustice. People paralyzed. They don't know how to respond. Are our spiritual leaders pointing us to the kingdom of Jesus in this time? Or are we pointing to a political party? So we look at chapter 9, verses 35 and following. I think there's a few things that we can learn about what it means to capture the passion of Jesus. And the first lesson is that we have to be with lost people. God is calling us to be intentional about building relationships with the lost people around us. I'm thinking your coworkers, your family members. And I mean really getting into their lives and getting to know them, to understand the fears, the brokenness, the hurt, the shame that they're experiencing. To know their successes as well, right? One of the hardest things for me about being a missionary probably was actually moving across the world where I was somewhat disconnected from my own family members. And, and one of the delights that I've had being back here, most of my family's in Nebraska, so I'm still a little bit disconnected from them by distance, but I've had an opportunity to be more engaged in their lives, to get to know them, to know what they're struggling with, what their hurts are, what their reality is, so that I can have a kind of God-driven empathy and compassion for them. And so my sister went through a really painful experience this summer uh, where she was engaged and her fiancé suddenly passed away. My niece is, a, is biracial, and in this season, she has struggled immensely with the injustice in our society. And I've been able to spend time with her, thinking not only about what she sees, but about God's perspective on what's going on here. And I've watched my aunt go through innumerable, innumerable challenges. She lost her youngest daughter in a car accident. Her husband died prematurely. Her son is going through intense struggles, and somehow she's managing this in her own strength without Jesus, and to be able to go and share with her that she doesn't have to journey this alone, that God wants to journey with her and that we want to journey with her as well. 
we have to be with the lost. Jesus showed us and modeled to us this idea of being with the lost. And our passion for lost people is increased when we do that. So I don't know if you've thought about it during your time here, uh, but first of all, take advantage of the places where you go, where you work, times with your family. Really listen to people. And I would encourage you to broaden your vision for the world. If you haven't gone on a kind of short-term mission trip or you haven't gone to some other nation of the world, go and see the world, right? I will tell you the degree of lostness that we witnessed in places like Japan is beyond what we normally see here. When you go to places where it's less than 1% of people who follow Jesus, you know how hard, how far that journey is. And so if you have a chance to go there and see and have Jesus' passion um, for the lost kind of impressed upon you by being among the lost, I think we can do that and imitate Jesus in that work. There are two other things I want to say about this. And the first of all is if we're going to cultivate a passion for Jesus, we have to be personally connected to the heart of Jesus. You need to invest in your relationship with him to cultivate that personal connection so that when you go out and engage this world and engage the people around you, you're seeing them as he sees them. And then secondly, we actually have to be out in the world to cultivate that kind of compassion. So here's my question for you. Where are you at? Are you connected to the heart of Jesus? Are you taking time also to really listen to the people around you, really developing relationships with them so that you can be a kingdom influence there. Well, here we are. Jesus reflects on the people he's seen and he's filled with compassion. And then it says, Jesus calls the disciples to pray with him. It says there in verse 37, 38, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. So having experienced this compassion, Jesus challenges the disciples to pray. And it seems surprising, but it's almost as if Jesus recognizes he's not going to meet all these needs on his own. He's not going to be the hero himself, but he's going to raise up this group of hero makers who will be about preaching and demonstrating the kingdom of God. He realizes that more workers are needed if the gospel is to go to the ends of the earth. And when Jesus invites the disciples to pray, I think he's inviting them to do two things. First of all, he's inviting them to depend on God. When we pray, we realize This kingdom business that we're about is not something that we can do on our own. It's not something we can do in our own strengths. We should not pray for God to bless our plans, right? But we should be praying that God would help us know his plans and know where he's working and we want to join him. So that's what Jesus is calling the disciples to do, to depend on him, to follow him, and to see where they can partner with God. And then secondly, when Jesus is calling them to pray, 
He's actually calling them to be willing to take action. I don't know if you've thought about this, but when you pray for God to do something, you are placing yourself at his feet as a willing vessel to be used as he would, to be part of the answer to that prayer. How is God calling you to take action on behalf of the lost people of your generation? When you pray about your generation, what is he prompting you to do? Is he prompting you to share the gospel with the unbelieving at your workplace? Is he prompting you to defend the oppressed in Jesus' name? Is he prompting you to build a business that gives all glory to God? Is there someone here that he's prompting to take the gospel to the ends of the earth in places like Japan or Iraq or Spain? So so here we are at the end of Matthew chapter 9, and Jesus is filled with compassion And he challenges his disciples to pray. And it's almost like just before the prayer meeting can even conclude, Jesus says, I have a plan. And when we move into chapter 10, we see that Jesus gives his disciples this plan for what to do. They've caught his vision. They're filled with compassion. And now he challenges them to imitate his work in three ways. And so when we look here in chapter 10, starting in verse 1, we read, And he called to him the twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles or enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. And Jesus here is challenging his disciples to imitate his work in three ways. First of all, he's challenging them to go to the lost. In verse 6, Jesus commands his disciples to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is a little bit of an intriguing comment that's only really embedded in Matthew, and we could get tripped up on this. We do know that in Scripture there's this kind of pattern where Paul and Jesus, they would go first to the Jews and then they would go to the Gentiles. But let's not overlook the kind of key phrase here, that Jesus wanted them to go to the lost sheep the sheep that we were just talking about, the sheep that Jesus had just been reflecting on, the people who were distressed and downcast 
the sheep who are wandering aimlessly and beaten down. He's challenging them to look around. And he's challenging us, too, to look around. Who are the sick, the oppressed? Who are the spiritually disillusioned? And Jesus' kingdom mission demands that we see them and communicate to them that there's good news. There's good news because God reigns and there's hope and healing in his name. Jesus is also calling us to imitate his ministry, we see in verse 7, by proclaiming the gospel. In verse 7, Jesus commands his disciples to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see that that exact same phrase is used in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 of Jesus' ministry. And again, we saw it earlier in 9, chapter, 30, uh, chapter 9, verse 35. It's as if Jesus is telling his disciples, preach the same message that I've been proclaiming. And that message includes a call to repentance, a call to, re- to turn away from our sin, a call to turn away from our agenda and turn toward the agenda of God. When's the last time you've heard someone calling for repentance? I mean, here we are in 2020 facing immense challenges. And I don't hear anyone talking about repentance. Jesus' message is a call to repent of our sin and turn to God. And then it's a call to recognize that God's in control. The kingdom is at hand. And Jesus provides a solution to the evil in our hearts and the evil in our society and the evil in this world. And it's Jesus alone who brings salvation to the downcast and the bewildered. So when you're out ministering, when you're interacting with lost sheep, broken people, don't forget to talk about Jesus. We know, right, Paul says this in Romans chapter 10, that the gospel is not carried to people unless they hear it. We have to share the good news verbally. Of course, I'm not saying we shouldn't demonstrate it. We're going to show compassion We're going to get into people's lives. I'm actually quite a proponent personally of social action, right? Offering healing actually in Jesus' name, physically demonstrable healing in Jesus' name. But we also have to share with them verbally the good news. The gospel is primarily a declared message. An important principle in missions is that when you go to a people, you learn their language and their culture, right? When I went to Japan, I learned Japanese so that I could speak to people in their heart language so that they could have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that was understandable to them. You see, a missionary heart says, I will go to you and I will learn your language so that we can talk about the most important message in the world. And God is calling us to be missionaries even in our own society, to speak the language of the people around us and speak into that language the hope of Jesus and the gospel, the good news that there's forgiveness 
through him and true life through Jesus Christ. And we see here that finally Jesus calls us to imitate his ministry by also demonstrating the gospel. So in verse 8, Jesus tells the disciples to heal the sick, to cast out demons. Those are the very same things that Jesus was reported to have done in chapter 9, verse 35. The parallel is clear. It says, if Jesus is commanding his disciples to demonstrate the power of God in the same ways that he did, I know this creates all kinds of theological challenges and problems for us, but I don't want to get, I don't have time to get into that discussion right here, but I will tell you this. God is moving. God is showing up. God is active, right? I've seen the power of God in people's lives. Drug addicts freed. My first term in Japan, my mom was sick with stage four cancer and we prayed for her. She had a death sentence. I went home and was told, when you come back, it'll be for a funeral. We prayed for her, and we prayed, and God healed her. Why does he heal some people and not other people? It's a challenge, right? But God moves, and I saw him move in that case. So how is God calling you to demonstrate the gospel? Who is he calling you to pray for, to pray for their healing? To pray that they would know him? How is he calling you to act, to serve a widow or the homeless, to pray for the sick or to offer hope to someone with no hope? He's calling us to do this among our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our families to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we imitate our master, Jesus Christ. So this morning, I'm asking you, where's your passion? Are you out among people seeing them as Jesus sees them? Are you asking the king of the universe to give you his eyes to see people as he sees them? and to break your heart as his heart breaks for them. Will you imitate him in the work that he's called us to do? Let's not be seduced at this time by the kingdom of this world. Let's not be seduced by the political rhetoric around us. Let's not miss the opportunity to see the brokenness around us and to see what God is doing in the midst of that. Let's pray for boldness to move out into the world with spirit empowerment because we want to join God in his kingdom work. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this group, for this community. I thank you for how you are using Northwestern in this world. And I pray for our community, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see the world as you see them. Lord, help us see the brokenness around us. Really see it, God. God, we pray that our hearts would break like yours breaks. And I pray that you would give us boldness to proclaim the good news, to show compassion, to demonstrate the goodness of what you're doing, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be dismissed. <laughs>